If you've been listening to my show, you know that the importer on the back of the bottle is one of the surest ways to guarantee a quality bottle of wine. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Taub Family Selections. Taub Family Selections is a dynamic, fourth-generation, family-owned wine import company with a truly incredible portfolio of fine wines from 11 countries. These wines not only embody the unique terroir in which they are produced, but the passion and integrity of each family member involved from vineyard to table. Notable estates include Mastro Berardino, Bertani, Travellini, Ferrari, Coldorcia, Trimbach, Jean-Luc Colombo, Jean-Michel Jarin, among many other renowned producers. They also have from Bordeaux, Lafitte Rothschild from the left bank, and on the right bank, they have Chateau Lafleur. I'm telling you, these guys have it all. To find out even more, go to TaubFamilySelections.com. That's T-A-U-B, FamilySelections.com. Do you know about Grapes, the wine company? Grapes is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. They offer a remarkable selection of wines and spirits. The breadth and depth of their inventory is astounding. Add in an unparalleled level of expertise and customer service, and you could see why other retailers are green with envy. Through their extensive and ever-growing network of relationships from around the world, Grapes, the wine company, offers the opportunity to discover the newest and most exciting wines and revisit the classics from both established and emerging wine regions. Grapes features a selection of over 4,000 wines and spirits. The Wall Street Journal has called Grapes one of the most influential retailers in the U.S., and it rings true to this day. Wine is a joyful thing, and Grapes the Wine Company exists to connect people with the choices bottles. Ordering is super simple using their easy-to-navigate website, or go old school and call to speak with one of their wine consultants for an in-depth feedback for your wine and spirits needs. Call them at 914-397-9463. That's 914-397-WINE. Or email your general inquiries to info at grapesthewineco.com. That's info at grapes, T-H-E-W-I-N-E-C-O.com. You'll be glad you did. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, everybody. What's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is one of a select few 100-point winemakers in Washington State and winemaker with Force Majeure, Holocene, Weather Eye, Pasha, and The Walls. Welcome, Todd Alexander. Hi. Uh, previously, Todd was the winemaker for acclaimed cult winery Bryant Family in Napa Valley. He began his career in the Napa Valley at esteemed wineries, including including Cade and Plump Jack. Todd holds a winemaking certificate from UC Davis and has worked with some of the best and brightest in the wine industry, including vineyard manager David Abreu and winemaking consultant Michelle Ruland. Uh, he has a passion for single vineyard and terroir-driven wines. Again, welcome, Todd. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think you got it. Um, we're we're ready to wrap. 
Okay, cool. So, you've said it so, all. So um, remember to check uh, you know, your sponsors. Okay. Um, so here's the part where I would ask, normally ask a guest, hey, tell us a wine we'll be drinking this afternoon. But, um, you know, Todd is like the one winemaker who just doesn't come pack in heat. So fortunately, <laughs> uh, I had a bottle. I'm always unprepared. I know. I had a bottle of, uh, it's 2013 La Petite Chapelle Hermitage by Paul Jabolet. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we're going to drink some Syrah and it's, it's, it's pretty nice opening up and thanks for uh, sharing it. My pleasure. Of course. I mean, that was all part of my plan. Actually. I know. Listen, he's like, he's like, motherfucker, you know how much wine I've sent this guy? <laughs> he could bring me a bottle. <laughs> it's like, man, just grab something from your collection. <laughs> now you've got them. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> yeah, let's, uh. And and this is the thing about Todd. I don't know. Todd must have saw either saw on IG Live. It was my podcast. But literally one day during the pandemic, um, we're talking 2020 pandemic because mm-hmm. we're technically probably still in a pandemic. I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving any advice here. Yeah, I don't um, know. It's like kind of ambiguous now. We're, right. What are we doing? Well, What's happening? we're worrying about people getting slapped at the Oscars. And, yep. Well, there is a war going on. That is huge. Yeah, so, that's right. But uh, but um, so – yeah, so pandemic wise, though, it's a question, kind of a question mark. It really is. Um, people are just kind of, I think, fatigued. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know where, like, I think you were on my mailing list, but one day this, this mm-hmm. box of wine shows up and it's a mixed case of all your stuff. And and I remember I went to the DM and I just thanked you. And, and I had never, I knew about your wines. I'd never tried any of your wines in the whole case. I mean, you know, we'll get into this, but this guy makes. He make he runs a gamut of Burgundian varietals to Bordeaux varietals to Rhone varietals to some other shit. I'm sure he's experimenting with that. We'll find out about Spanish varietals because yeah, there, there's a Tempranillo and Stanley Groove. I mean, so mm-hmm. crazy. But we start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up, Todd? So I grew up kind of all over. Um, I was actually born in Montgomery, Alabama, and my dad was in the military in the Air Force, so moved around quite a bit growing up. But I kind of consider roots to be mostly Texas because my all my my parents are both from there and my extended family is all there and that was kind of the one constant place growing up that i always went back to a couple times a year yeah and all my family's there my parents live there again now so but i moved i lived in florida um indiana ohio um arizona and uh and Texas growing up. And I was only in Alabama for like two weeks. So I'd, okay. <laughs> well, I was born there, but we, then we moved pretty much right away. Yeah. So, um, where in Texas is your family? What's your family live? They're in Northeast Texas, about a hundred miles east of Dallas in a town called Mount Pleasant. Okay. It's a small town. There's not a lot there. It's a cool place. A lot of agriculture. My grandparents and kind of both sides were farmers. And I had a grandfather who was also a businessman. He had two restaurants in the, in the forties and fifties. And, uh, yeah, I, I go back and visit every year and I, it's a, it's a really beautiful part of Texas, Northeast kind of rolling Hills and East Texas. Nice. It's really pretty there. Nice. So <clears throat> you said, you know, dad was in the air force. Mm-hmm. Uh, was your, what did your mom do anything? Or was she just stay at home mom? Did My mom was a stay at home mom. Nice. Yeah. Until, uh, when I was in middle school, then she, she started working when we, we weren't so young, she yeah. had to like take care of us. So. Yeah, she was just a stay-at-home mom for a long time. She was awesome, you know, a very selfless person. And um, she pretty much took care of my brother and I. And I have one brother. He's about four years older than me. And my dad worked. Very kind of classic structure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To the home. Um, um, did he, was he, now, 
was he disciplinarian because of the military or was it kind yeah. of strict home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, I think it's part part of the reason my brother and I kind of rebelled. Um, it was pretty strict growing up. He was a pretty, I have a great relationship with him, but yeah. growing up it was a little bit contentious at times. And I think my brother and I did things that like he didn't want us to do. Um, and, you know, he was a, could be a little bit controlling or try to be, but we just didn't really, we didn't, we didn't you did, conform you did, to that, you, did, you know, you and we were like, we're going to push, right? we're going to push back. And so <laughs> right. he finally stopped and he realized, oh, everything's okay. You know, um, you're not, you're not going to ruin your life. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, yeah, but he was pretty strict, pretty strict growing up. My mom was kind of the opposite. So I had this interesting dynamic growing up of a kind of authoritarian parent and a parent that was like, what, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so it was confusing. <laughs> We're not going too far into therapy though. Right no, nah, man. <laughs> um, I just, I just always think, uh, I, I just thought of the movie. I'm not sure you've ever seen the great Santini with Robert Duvall. Yeah. Yeah. When the dad just bounced the basketball off his head. I hope your dad didn't do that. <laughs> but, no. Uh, but, uh, Close. <laughs> but yeah, I've heard from people, the same story from friends who like a lot of people whose parents were in the military. They're like, it was cool because they moved around. Some people like moving around, you know? I didn't know anything different. Yeah. I kind of think about it now and I part of me wishes like we would have just been in one place, but I feel like it was a benefit to have gone different places. And I didn't live internationally or anything. We could have, but... My dad wanted to keep us um, on in the United States yep. and not take us abroad. Um, and it was, I mean, I just didn't know anything different. So to me, it was exciting. I remember we moved from Ariz, uh, from Ohio to Arizona. And I was like, Arizona, and this is like 1989. And I'm like, all that's there is like sand dunes, right? Like, <laughs> well, I don't know what's there. You know, I had no idea. And I couldn't look it up. There's no internet, you know. I so. know. What did, what did we do back then? Oh, we they're find called out about encyclopedias <laughs> yeah, and we newspapers. <laughs> yeah, in imagination. Yeah. You had to, oh, my God. So it was kind of an adventure moving all that way and to a completely new, unknown place that I never had seen. Or um, And then, you know, what I realized was it's really hot. And <sighs> I was like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> got to get out of here. <laughs> no, Arizona is beautiful. Yeah, it is. Um so you mentioned was your grandfather owned two restaurants in the forties or fifties? Yeah. What type of restaurants did he own? They were like diners. Okay. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather, that grandfather, had a third grade education, mm -hmm. and he had to, um, basically drop out of school to help his family. That was just how it was back then. He was born in nineteen oh seven. Oh, so he Great Depression. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and he and he knew it because he was mm -hmm. old. He wasn't like two years old. Yeah, so yeah. He so, was in it. Yeah. So he didn't have a, um a big education, but he was a smart guy and he bought land and he invested in land and he had a couple of restaurants. He was a successful and respected businessman in Mount Pleasant. Um, and, uh, I didn't get to know him really well. He passed away when I was uh, a kid, mm -hmm. but I remember him, but, um, I think about him quite a bit and there's a, you know, a building in downtown Mount Pleasant that has our last name on it. He owned the building and, it's kind of cool. He was a big part of downtown. There's a street named after him and stuff. Well, that's cool. really cool. Yeah, man. it is cool. That's awesome. Yeah. But he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't like slinging wine. Right. <laughs> 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 Unfortunately. What about, what about your parents? Were Did they did they ever have wine? Did you have wine? Did your parents have wine when you were growing up? Not anything, really gr not anything really great. Um, my older brother kind of got me into wine. Um, 
you know, Italian wine. And my, my dad was always drinking wine, but he wasn't drinking. He wasn't like a wine collector. He kind of is now, mm-hmm. but his thing was more honestly like whiskey yeah. and, and some like cheap wine. Okay. So like, <clears throat> where did you, so where did you graduate from high school? And then, and then, and then, uh, mm-hmm. where'd you go to undergraduate? Yeah. I graduated, um, from Canyon Doloro high school in Tucson, okay. Arizona. And then I went to the university of Arizona. I was right in Tucson. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I lo- listen. The one go- good sports, man. Good basketball. Yeah, good basketball team. Although they just they were a number one seed, and then they yeah. So was Kentucky. Lost a sweet sixteen. We took Kentucky down. No, Kentucky was a two, but yeah, they did lose. I I always root for Arizona. I like I liked I liked those teams, even though I'm not from there. I just like the way they played. Yeah. Sean Elliott's squad. I was there when Lou Olson was the so coach, coach, you know. Yeah. And I I was there when we won the national championship, and that was really exciting. Was that the Miles Simon was uh-huh. on the team? Yeah, yeah, Mike Bibby, Miles Simon, yep. all those guys, Michael Dickerson, um, and then later Luke Walton came, and you know, um. Who, somebody who I've become friends with, Channing Fry. I was going to say Channing Fry went there. <laughs> yeah, and he lives in Portland, and we're kind of friends now. And I used to go watch him play, and uh, yeah, he's a, he's awesome. Shout out to Channing. Channing yeah. and I did an IG Live. The Chosen mm-hmm. Wines are really – it's a nice project. They're doing some it good is. work up there. It yeah. is. Yeah, it's a really cool project. Yeah. Um, that's so cool. That, that That's really cool that you watch them play, and now you yeah. guys are like – Wine buddies. <laughs> wine buddies. <laughs> the wine world's interesting like that. It's, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people from a lot with a lot of different backgrounds and the common thread is wine and it really brings a lot of different people together. I think it's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. One of the things I like about it. So what did you major in at U of A? Yeah, I have a, I have a degree in history with a minor in art history and linguistics. Oh, you were going to be so, a teacher. <laughs> I was going to go to grad school. <laughs> Teaching, I don't know if I'd be a good teacher, but I thought about doing grad school and uh-huh. I don't know. I, um, I Well, I thought for a while I was going to maybe go to the foreign service and that's what right. was going to be my career right. path. And then kind of right when I was wrapping up, I I realized I had kind of an epiphany where I was like, winemaking so i'd always been a musician too um and that's going back to you asked me a question another profession that you'd like mm-hmm. to do and a musician like being able to earn a living doing that would have been amazing what what, um, what, what did you play what instruments did you i play? started playing guitar okay. and i actually played in a band i played in a few bands but um i did play in a, an indie rock band that kind of toured we toured the u.s and um, put an album out on a small label and um that was i made a run at it but didn't it didn't didn't work? It's hard. It's tough business. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's no joke. But that's no pretty joke. cool, though. I mean, but you th- it's one of those things. Like, think about how many people have um, played instruments, had a band, actually got to put out mm-hmm. an album, yeah. and actually tour the country. I mean, yeah, you might, you know, people might play gigs in town. So, I mean, you you know, know thyself. I mean, you stop. We, but like, it's pretty cool, man. Yeah, I mean, I. It was really, it was really fun. And when we were touring, even though we we're, you know, it could be one night where you're playing a place. I played CBGB here in New York. Jeez, pretty see, awesome. how many people played CBGBs? Right? <laughs> I know. I love being able to say I played there. Before I it was know because it's gone, right? It's gone. But wow. like I, um, I while I was going on, I was like, I don't care. Even if we never quote unquote make it, which I don't want to be like a huge band. I just wanted to be able to have enough, just make a living doing it. Right. Basically, um, I thought, man, so lucky to just be able to do this right now and um enjoy it while i'm young this is my early 20s you know so um 
it was really fun. It was really exciting. But my what I was saying is um, I've always been kind of a quote unquote creative person. Mm-hmm. I I've always drawn I'm always drawn to like music or visual art things like that. So when I kind of discovered winemaking, it felt like um, it would be a good fit. It felt like something that I would enjoy. Because I used to worry, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up doing something I, I hate. That's kind of like what everybody's fear is, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to do something in my life that's, I'm just earning a living and I'm not really happy and enjoying it. So. What a shitty term, earn a living. Right. Wait, so I have to go to work to but be that's alive? A of, that's a lot of people's I reality, know. though. You know, know. Unfortunately. Everybody's working for the weekend. So, they right. get those two days off, right? That's right. You know. So, and- they can do things they want to do. So, I'm really lucky that. I found winemaking because I, I just, I mean, it's the dream. It's like, you don't feel like you're working mm. uh, because you love it, right. you know? So I'm really fortunate. So you mentioned a few moments ago that your your older brother kind of got you into wine. Mm-hmm. How did he get you into wine? Yeah. So him being a little older than me, and we were roommates for a time before he went to the Navy. He went to the Navy and ended up flying. He flew F-14s. Oh, shit. So that was pretty amazing. But <laughs> before that... <laughs> So, um, wait, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah. So, taking off and landing on the boat? On aircraft carrier, yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy to look at. You actually know someone. That your brother's done that. Yep. I know. It is crazy. <laughs> it's even crazier. Like, he, he graduated from the University of Arizona as well, and he, his degree was in English. Oh, wow. And then one day, and, and specifically, like, 19th century British literature was, like, his That's focus. That's pretty niche. Yeah. And then he, we were roommates, and he's, like, came home one day, and he goes, I joined the Navy. I'm like, what? Like, we ne- literally never, ever talked about it at all. And we were kind of like, uh, you know, not not like we're going to go to the military because our dad was military. And we're like, we're not yeah, going to yeah, go down not. that road. <laughs> you know? Can't work and, for that corporation. <laughs> and uh, he, he, yeah, he's like, I went took some exams and like, I can fly. I'm, I can, I can do flight school if I, if I can just hack it, you know? And I was like, okay. He had long hair and. He shaved his head, and like three months later, he's gone out the door, gone to Florida, went to OCS, Offshore Candidate School, passed that. And then he was in a class with like 30, 35 people or something, all trying to be pilots and all trying to fly. And there's only two fighter jet positions for everybody. And he's in there with people with, you know, who've been wanting to do this, like aeronautical engineering yeah, degrees Ice and man, stuff. You got Goose. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he, he, he got fighters and he got F-14s. There's only two F-14 slots. So he had to outcompete all these people. So it's, I'm super proud of him about that. That, you know? well, that just, he's, I'm having a conversation with you. I can tell how intelligent, but super intelligent because like you said, like people generally are come from an engineering background. Mm-hmm. Uh, or mathematics or computer science to do that stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's exactly. Yeah. And he had an English degree right. and he's like, had to just crash course, right. like <laughs> figure all this stuff out and learn it. And, and then he did it. So kudos to him. But like when we going back to your question, um, when we were living together, he, he would bring bottles of, uh, of wine home and he had like a little Italian wine collection. It was nothing like, you know, crazy wild. It was just good enough that it was, it was kind of like, Hmm what's this? This is not, this is different. This is really good. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of got the wheels turning. And then I met, uh, Carrie, my wife now. Um, and she had lived in Napa. I met her when I was living in Tucson okay. and she had worked in Napa. And so she started opening up bottles for me and it was just kind of like blew my mind a little bit. And then I, re- that was when I kind of really decided that I want to, this is what I want to do. And I went to, did a trip to Bordeaux and, 
not specifically for wine, but just to check out France and kind of went through there. And I remember looking, I was on the train, like looking out the window, watching people in the vineyards working. And I was like, this is a, it seems like obvious, but it's like, this is a thing. This is a thing. This is a thing that I could do. I have no idea how to get into it, but I can figure it out. And so here we are. So <clears throat> that trip to Bordeaux, did you visit any chateau? I no, mean, no, not just, that just, trip. Just, okay. okay. That was just, I went, I went to um, a, a village called Saumur. Yeah. In the Loire Valley. Yep. Mm-hmm. I went there and just, it was just stunningly beautiful. And I had some wines from the region. This is going back a long time. This is 20 plus years ago. Um, and then went, took a train down to Bordeaux and actually rented a car in Bordeaux to go. We rented a house for like a week, a little farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and did nothing wine related, but just, it just got the wheels turning when I was seeing how many, cause my first time going to Bordeaux and I have you ever been there? Mm, I haven't been yet. You can see, I mean, it's incredible the amount of vineyards there are. They just go on forever mm-hmm. and it's, it's really impressive. And it's like in France, you know, or you can take Italy too, or Spain even, um, wine is kind of a way of life. It's not, it's a little different than it is here in yeah. most places. You yeah, know? totally. So that really had an impact on me and rubbed off on me and um, made me realize that um, there's a there's a whole different way of life, a whole different not not I won't say lifestyle, but this creative endeavor that people have been undertaking for centuries, both in the vineyards and the wineries. Um, it's awesome from an agricultural standpoint because uh, you know it ties back to my family's history as farm uh, farmers mm-hmm. and then. There's a really awesome creative side to it that's like your own expression of of whatever you're uh, working with, whatever vineyards you're working with or fruit you're working with. So it's satisfying on an agricultural level, scientific level, and artistic level. And I had that first kind of epiphany that it, it is all those things. And I don't think of it as a, a product or a beverage. It's something different. It's a time capsule, mm. you know. So that first trip to, to Bordeaux was... Um, that was coming back from that in, in France in general, I would say was when I decided like, well, I want to go and try and figure this out. So, but I already finished my degree. And yeah. so it's like, what am I, how am I going to get into it? Yeah. You know? So what was your next step? When, like, yeah. So I actually went, I actually went to Texas and I went cause I had family there and I went through a, a, a an associate program in winemaking and I worked at a winery in Texas for a couple of years because I felt like, and I was wrong, but at the time I thought going to California seemed a little bit daunting mm-hmm. because it's so competitive. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need to, I can't go in there blind and I'm not going to go do a master's program. I think at Davis, you know, I just, I didn't have the time for that. I needed to work. So associates was doable. And cause I had already had my bachelor's degree. So it was really easy to just transfer all the general ed stuff and just focus on the core classwork. And so that got me the, the chemistry and the science background that I needed. And then, um, working while I was doing that, also working at, uh, a winery in Texas, a couple of wineries, which, um, which ones I'm not going to mention them. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cause they're not, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. yeah. You're not going to mention it. Wasn't, <laughs> he's not going to mention it. It's not great. Uh, uh, I, that's, I think... that's actually why I want to go to California. Cause I was like, okay, you know, if I want to get really serious about this, this is not the place to be doing it. And yeah. it's different now than yeah, it was so there's then. Some, there's, yeah. there's some really good there's stuff. But back in there. the time, at the time I was like, 
I remember watching some people load uh, Chardonnay into a press, and there were these big, um, like hornworms, like green <laughs> caterpillars on top of the fruit, and they were they were just dumping everything in the press. And I, was like, I was like, do you do you want to maybe sort those out? And he's <laughs> like, they just disintegrate. And I'm and like, do cool. the wine. I'll never drink that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was like, this isn't. I mean, because enough, enough insects, just so you guys know, uh, slip through even when you are sorting grapes. It's an agricultural product, right? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. But like just some big gnarly green caterpillars. Just, this was something you could have easily like yeah. taken out. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just pure like laziness. Oh. And that, yeah. Yeah. Not good. <laughs> so then, yeah, I went to after a couple of years. I learned my learned my way around the cellar and kind yeah. of learned general operations. Then I was off to California and off to Napa, and then yeah, I I got Tony Biaggi. Um, yeah. So how did me. you you landed in Napa? Where'd you go? Did you? I went to Plum Jack. Okay. First. Now, how did you? How did like like why Plum Jack? Like how does like is there some? There's they always some crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be some like did you write him a letter? Some, yeah. Some yeah. Facts? I, like, I, yeah. I applied to. Uh, a handful of wineries um and i interviewed with tony and and and, and todd i'm gonna just stop you yeah. real quick because there's there are we have all levels i mean i know like people like you at winemakers but there could be listeners who don't know who tony biaggi is no. yeah. okay yeah so tony biaggi he was the winemaker at plum jack when i when i worked there and now he's with hourglass patria wines and he consults on a number of other projects as well um he's awesome really great winemaker super fun guy um, big personality. So, uh, he's, he's been someone who I've been friends with since I moved to California and still am now, you know? Um, but yeah, I worked with him and I was, you know, I was, I was doing that for a few years and then I transitioned over to Bryant family. There was an opportunity there and I threw my hat in the ring and got hired on. And then, so again, I'm <laughs> yeah. like, for the listeners out there, like, um, so first of all, plump Jack, was weren't they the first like premium wine to use a corkscrew in the valley? Uh, a screw cap. Screw cap. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. They. Yeah. They. Corkscrew dummy. Screw cap. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah. They. They. I think it was maybe ninety five or ninety six. They bottled half the cabernet with corks and half with screw cap, and it was going to be like a ten year experiment. And I believe they're still doing it now. And I was there when their sister winery Cade yep. had also just started. So I was. I was working on Cade and Plump Jack wines at the same time, two different facilities. Um, and Cade was kind of the same thing, like um, some screw cap uh, enclosures. And um, Plump Jack, though, at the time, great wines, great Cabernet. And it was a really cool place to to work. And working at Cade when it first started was, was awesome. It was a brand new facility, a brand new brand. So um, great place to kind of get my feet in the door in right. Napa. Yeah. It was awesome. And so then over to Harlan, which is like a big, was one of the biggie cult wines. I mean, like. I was at Bryant. Bryant. I'm sorry. Yeah. Bryant. Yeah. Um, yep. Now, where's Bryant? See, now, see, I, I'm, because I remember Harlan Bryant. So where's Bryant in the valley? Where, so where's their property? It's a, it's in St. Helena, but okay. if you go, I don't know if you know where Lake Hennessy is, Sage Canyon <laughs> Road. So it's, if you're on um, Silverado Trail. Yep. You take Sage Canyon Road, you head east, drive maybe, I don't know, it's kind of near Colgan and Continuum and Chapelet. It's in that whole area. Oh, so it is, it is in that kind of, well, so it's, it's called Pritchard, Pritchard Hill. Hill. Yeah, it's, it's in Pritchard. I thought so. It was also in Pritchard it's Hill. It's on Pritchard Hill, yeah. yeah. And now Chapelet owns the trademark for the 
named Pritchard Hill. So like Bryant, no one can use that. Well, I would tell but people- But we call it Pritchard but Hill. But it's so funny <laughs> because that like the Chapelets were there way before yeah. those guys. Yeah. But then, like when the cult lines came out, then it'd be like, "Oh, Pritchard Hill." So good for, good, you know, good for the old OGs for like, no, no, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, you they know. yeah they snagged the trademark on that a long time ago, and they have a wine called Pritchard, Pritchard Hill. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's delicious. And and my wife Carrie worked there, worked with Molly Chapelet for a number of years, and was her assistant. And they're awesome people and make great wines. So they're our neighbor, just kind of right behind Bryant family on the hill. And Bryant was kind of out there by itself. And, um, it was an incredible place to work. I'm really fortunate that, um, I worked there when I did and I worked with Helen Keplinger and she's amazing. She's a great mentor to me. And she actually was consulting on force majeure when I first started and first moved up. Cause I kind of went, took her to lunch one day and was like, I'm thinking about moving up to Washington, you know? And she's like, I think I totally think you should do it. You know, I was kind of asking people, what do you think? Should I do this? Cause it was a big change. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. So when you worked at Bryant, um, Mm -hmm. you, so you were assistant to Helen Mm -hmm. and then you became the winemaker. Yep. And then your GM. So what does a GM do? Were you still making the wine or did you hire one? How does. No, I was still making the wine. I was winemaker and general manager. It's a, you know, Bryant's a small winery at the time. Now I think they have a bigger team, but at the time you didn't really need that much. We had kind of an office admin, a seller master. Um, assistant winemaker, winemaker, and I took on the GM uh, duties when the GM that was there left. And it was just kind of overseeing the day-to-day and shipments and um, just making sure the wheels are turning and things are getting done. Um, so it wasn't like a huge job that needed to be done. And I'd been working there enough and been involved in all aspects, not just the winemaking stuff, but all aspects of like fulfillment because Bryant, you know, you do all your own in-house fulfillment. So everything's, the vineyard's there. Work with some of David Avery's vineyards, but everything's bottled there. You have your own bottling line. Everything's shipped straight out of the winery. There's no like middleman. Yes, DTC, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But some people, you know, after bottling, some wineries will ship their wine off to a warehouse. Mm-hmm. And then that company mm-hmm. that warehouses it does the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. But at Bryant, it was like, you know, you packed every box and palletized everything in the Trucks came to the winery and picked the wine up and went straight to people's houses. So uh, it, that was a big part of um, the seller master there really uh, took the lead on that. But that was a big responsibility at Bryant. It's a lot of it's a lot of stuff to keep up with. And then on the compliance side, it's a lot of work too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when did you uh, – so you mentioned Helen uh, and Tony uh, mm-hmm. as, as mentors. When did you meet Michelle Roland? Well, I met R- Michelle Roland at Bryant. Okay. So, um, you know, he's, he, at the time would come a few times a year, just do blending. So, and that guy is an incredible blender. I mean, he's the maestro. I put together some preliminary blends. We would sit down for like four hours and taste through all the wines of that vintage that we're trying to put together. And, you know, he would, I remember I was really proud the 2012 uh, vintage, you know, he, I had assembled this blend. I put it in front of him. He's like, I don't think that I can improve on this. Um, <laughs> and then he, and we, he's like, but we'll try. And so <laughs> he starts like, you know, getting surgical with it. And we try a few different things. And he's like, no, yours is better. And, and so we kept it. And I was very proud of that. And then, but with the patina bottling that we were doing at the time, which is a, um, 
a parallel to Bryant family, but it's from three, three of David Abreu's vineyards. It's a blend from his sites as opposed to being the estate Bryant wine. Um, I was like, I'm having a harder time with this. And he kind of goes through it, just made a couple of subtle changes and it really just totally changed the wine. And, um, I, I'm a huge believer in, uh, you know, what in blending, I mean, blending is so important in winemaking, having options to blend, to create the best wine you can. Um, even if it's a single vineyard, you still need different lots that you can work with later on. So every, every, all your eggs aren't in one basket and you, then consistently every year you can put together a great wine. That was something I learned, learned from Michelle Roland or realized through working with him. So let's unpack that a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. um, you said, so in an, even in a single vineyard wine, you would have different lots. What does that, yeah. what does that look like? Well, so, you know, imagine, you don't really have to imagine. Well, I guess, I mean, like if you take Bryant family or even force majeure, like the force majeure estate vineyard, mm-hmm. um, it's planted. There's a lot of Syrah okay. and there's a lot of Cabernet. So you're not bringing in all the Syrah all at the same time, for example. Like, okay. it's not like, okay, we're going to pick all the Syrah on Wednesday. All that's coming in. It's like, I might start picking Syrah in late August or early September, depending on the vintage and what the weather's been like. And I might not finish picking Syrah until October. Mm. So I'm picking a little bit here, a little bit there through different spectrums of ripeness okay, and physiological development. Okay. And then I'm doing different things with them. Maybe I'm doing whole cluster. Maybe I'm co-fermenting with Viognier. Maybe I'm destemming. Maybe I'm using new oak. Maybe I'm using neutral oak. And then you fast forward through Elevage a couple of years or, you know, 18 months or whatever it is. And you sit down with these various lots and one lot might be a single barrel. One lot might be 10 barrels. Depends on how big your picks are and how big your tank size is and all that. And then you start to taste through everything and you start to get an idea of how it comes together and how you can make a very complete wine that has like freshness, opulence, length, um, and deliciousness, you know, and that's indicative of that site and that vintage. Um, I think you see a lot of people that are like, if you make a single block wine, maybe you, you just get one pick Yeah, and it is what it is. There's no blending involved. And I do that sometimes too. But when I'm, it comes to like estate winemaking, what I want to do is really have enough material to work with that you can, you can blend, you can declassify stuff kind of like the Petite Chapelle that we're yeah. having now would have been a similar mm-hmm. situation for that. They they would have had their quote unquote, unquote top wines yep. going into La Chapelle and then what's declassified goes into this. So there's a very similar method at Bryant Family in place and there's a very similar method at Force Majeure and Pasha and other things that I work on. Cool. Try to do that. All right. We know what this is actually a good time to take a quick break. And then we'll talk about the move up to Washington State. All right. So we'll be right back, everybody. All right. Are you ready for another great distributor to look for when shopping for fine wines and spirits? Let me tell you about Independence Wine and Spirits or IWS. IWS is one of the hot up and coming distributors of fine wines and spirits headquartered in New York City. Like Tao Family Selections, IWS is owned by the Tao family who have re-entered the New York wholesale market, bringing the family back to its roots in distribution where they held court from 1951 through 2004. 
IWS is proud to represent an exceptional portfolio of high-quality, terroir-centric, and historic producers from around the world, including Italy and France, where they have an exciting roster of burgeoning Vinrones from Burgundy that are coming your way soon. They also have domestic producers such as La Coya, Cardinale, Staglin, El Molino, and many more. To learn more about IWS, go to independencewine.com. It's no secret that everyone's wine education journey is unique. You deserve a wine school that not only delivers top-notch content, but also guides you on a learning path that's right for you. So whether you're looking to earn your WSET certification or just get the basics without the stress of certification in their Wine 101 or 201 courses, the Napa Valley Wine Academy is a place to be. Go to NapaValleyWineAcademy.com for more information. Okay, we're back. Um, so you sat down with Helen. And what year was that? Was that 2014, 2012? Oh, in, for Washington? Yeah. That was 2014. 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said to her, I'm thinking about moving up there. And she said, I would if I were you. Something to yeah, that something like that. Yeah. And I talked to a few other people too, you know, because I had, the first time I went up to the Pacific Northwest, I I just loved it. I loved the Willamette Valley. Um, and I had tasted some wines from... Washington that I really liked. I remember it's kind of a, a, a funny story. I, I had this, I bought this bottle of K Ventner's oh, The yeah. Boy Grenache. Mm-hmm. I think it was the 2008 vintage. And I bought it at St. Helena Wine Merchant. And I took it home and Karen and I drank it. And I was like, this is really good. You know, <laughs> what's going on up there? <laughs> so I kind of, I started looking up K Ventner's and I was looking at, um, I knew the other guys like Betts and Quilcita Creek and Leonetti and I, I'd already know in Cayuse. Um, but I, I just kind of went, mm, this is a different kind of Grenache profile than what we typically see in California. Fast forward to now, I'm working with that exact fruit, you know, oh, wow. the same fruit that went into that bottle. I'm now working on, it doesn't go to Cave Vintners anymore. It goes to Pasha, the walls. So that's the River Rock Grenache. Okay. That's really so nice. it's pretty cool the way that kind of came full circle. That is a fucking good book. I did a, <laughs> I, I, I did one of my drunken wine uh, reviews. I was like, this is a really fucking good bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I've got to go live. It's so fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> you should do more of that. I, those are, I, I do need to do more, but I'm, yeah. I'm working now, man. So you do. Like, okay. But uh, I do need to do more of those. Those are like, people love those. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. It's I, they're the best. They're it. real. It's real. You yeah, know, it's, totally. it's, not, it's not like, Oh, yeah, Keir trying to be all blah, pretentious. Blah, blah, I'm like, fucking look at the color. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I opened this four hours ago. <laughs> Shit's getting bad. I mean, that's that's how I drink wine. Yeah, you know. Well, yeah. Just to go back to your story though, before, um, or your question, I was uh, after I'd gone to the Willamette in 2011. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, maybe eventually we end up moving north after spending some time in Napa. Um, I knew I didn't, if I was going to leave Bryant, I didn't want to like stay in Napa necessarily. I was like, I'd rather go kind of apply what I've learned somewhere new. Mm-hmm. And I, in 2013, I went on a trip with Sega Moreau Cooperage to France. And there was some Washington winemakers on the trip too. Okay. Specifically a guy, Mark McNeely, who owns Mark Ryan Winery and his winemaker, Mike McMorrin. And I started talking to them about Washington. I kind of kept in touch after the trip and after harvest 2013 i reached out and i was like hey what's going on up in washington anything i should i'm thinking about making a move maybe 
anything going on that might be interesting? And Mike was kind of like, yeah, actually force majeure might be looking for someone. They have a, they had a brand, they had a vineyard, but they didn't have like an estate winemaking program. They needed someone to kind of come in there and create that. So that was right up my alley. So the timing was really good and they were angling to be, you know, they were trying to do things that were different and trying to do things that other people weren't doing. Like, I know it sounds kind of obvious, but like not a lot of people in Washington at the time were planting on hillsides. It was a lot of like flat vineyards, um, very easy to farm and um, force majeure had gone up on the side, uh, Red Mountain and on the side of a hill, it's a steep rocky hillside and they planted high density Syrah on stakes and that to me was pretty compelling and interesting. And I was like, okay, I see the right mindset here and the willingness to try to do something different. So I was introduced to Paul McBride who owned the vineyard and we partnered up, decided that I would come up there and would get this thing going. So we did. And now we have three estate vineyards. We just built a new winery in Walla Walla the first few first few years i was living in seattle and i was working out of a warehouse in woodenville just making the first force majeure estate wines there while we decided where we wanted to kind of plant our flag in the ground and ultimately we ended up on the oregon side of the walla walla valley in the rocks district and we bought an old school <laughs> it was built in 1940 and we're renovating it now and then we the whole winery is about 12,000 square feet now it's all new build and um, it's, it's really a great facility. Um, and we're working on the hospitality space right now. That's going to be the original, the 1940 schoolhouse. We're renovating that and it's about to open like at the end of the month where host people by appointment. So, and then we have a, another, I don't, I'm probably getting too far ahead, but like I, we have another vineyard, um, for force majeure in an area called the North Fork that I'm really excited about. It's a 2000 foot elevation. Whereas like the Red Mountain site's about 900 to okay. 1,200 feet. So the North Fork area is kind of a new frontier in Walla Walla and higher elevation in the foothills of the Blue Mountains, a lot more rainfall um, and a lot cooler and more moderate. So we've planted Syrah and Viognier in there and it'll be another like single vineyard Syrah will be coming out, but it'll be a while for that. Anyway, I kind of... Went off on a tangent. That's what we do here. <laughs> it's long form podcast, yeah. and we can do that. Um, so edit it out. Nah, we don't. We don't. We don't want to edit. Man. That's why we make you sign a waiver. <laughs> oh shit! You know, so. I should. I th- I said, see, said so many no, things see, I shouldn't have um, said. See, that's why you didn't badmouth them Texas wineries, man. I kind of did. I know you did, but they I don't. They, they listen. Only they know who they are. Hey, so you know okay. what? It's all out of love. I just want them to be better. There you Come go. On, guys. Exactly. Come on, guys. Take the caterpillars out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, prior to moving up to Washington State, had you worked with anything but like board over idols? Like, because, you know, Cade. Plump Jack. Plump Jack has a Syrah. Right. Oh, yeah. I worked on, we made Syrah, this Plump Jack Syrah at Cade, actually. So that was, I worked with a Syrah there, but mostly the focus was Bordeaux varietals yeah. and certainly at Bryant family. So that was a whole new thing for me to learn. But I always, like, I my the first wines that I really got into, aside from, like, Italian stuff, this first, the first stuff that really got me excited was Chateauneuf. Oh, yeah. Chateauneuf de Pop. Wines from Chateauneuf de Pop um, really were compelling to me. So the idea of working with Grenache, the idea of working with Syrah, 
Um, that was really exciting. And I worked with Helen's Syrahs for her own label, Keplinger. Mm-hmm. Um, she made, she at the time, I think she has Cabernet now too, but at the time it was just Syrah and Grenache, Merved. So working with her stuff, I had that experience. And then, but it was a whole new world for me and a lot more, honestly, exciting to me than working with Cab. Mm-hmm. Cab was kind of, and especially, you know, Bryant family, I love, I love, I'm so thankful for my experience there and they're great. Um, it was, they're great people. I, I still am friends with them. But when you go a place like Bryant, my, my role was not to like reinvent the wheel. No, it was like, we, we, we get, we, get, like we, we already, get 98 to 100 points. Don't this fuck is what, what I want. This is what we do. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. You know, and, and like, I'm not going to go in there and be like, let's do some whole cluster Cabernet, you know? <laughs> Um, it was like, this is, there's kind of a, not, I wouldn't say recipe. There's always, it's a lot more dynamic than that, sure. but there's a specific way of doing things. And, um, you learn that and it's a great honor to do it. And, but then it's kind of like, I had a blank slate with force majeure. It's like, let's just do a whole bunch of different things and let's see what, how it turns out. And it took a, took a few years and I'm, I mean, I'm learning every year, but now I feel like I've got a pretty good handle specifically on the Red Mountain site. And I know how it behaves and what it's going to do. I can predict it a little better. Um, areas like the North Fork, I don't know. It's a total question mark. Like, what's what's the fruit going to be like? What's the profile going to be like? I don't know. We'll find out. And then beyond that, it's like, then what type of oak do you use and how much? And, you know, how long is the elevage and all these kinds of things that we just have to figure out, which I love. But it takes time. It takes so much time. So there's no way to fast track it. I, I always say that it takes you know, five years to five vintages to like learn, start to learn a site. Like Mm -hmm. what's this vineyard do, you know, because every year the weather's a little different and you have to pay attention to like, do, does it do well with whole cluster or not so much? What's the skin thickness? Like what's the, what, what are the seeds? Like what's the tannin profile? Like, is it really soft? Is it really supple or is it really powerful and muscular? And that all, all informs what you do with your Oak treatment, your Oak program and, um, the way you ferment the wines, temperatures and extraction protocols and all that kind of stuff. And like, what do you want to, what are you trying to achieve with the mouthfeel and how do you get there? So every site's a little different. So it takes a long time. So you mentioned, um, that, um, <clears throat> Bryant, there was, there was a specific process and, and you learn it and then mm-hmm. you, you apply it and you just make sure that the process that has been in place and, works works what would you say what was the winemaking culture um how did the winemaking culture up in washington state differ from your experiences in uh, napa valley um i think washington there's a big willingness to just try different things part of that comes from in napa the fruit is really expensive you know the wines are really expensive Mm -hmm. so the willingness to sort of experiment or the ability to experiment and try things is more limited because a lot of money's at stake. So if you screw something up because you're, you're fucking around with it, um, that's a lot of money that is jeopardized in Washington. The fruit costs are less and there's, it allows more people to get in the game. So you people, you see people doing pet nat you see people doing, um, you know, lighter, more natural wine, wine making for lack of a better term. And the, the, the term natural wine, I don't really like. Yeah. Um, neither do I. Yeah. It's... But it, but you know, um, 
there's just a lot more um, dynamism, I think, across the spectrum of winemaking in Oregon and Washington than what I've seen in like Napa, for example. But that's because Napa also, and I, and that's not, I'm not, it's not a complete like blanket statement. I don't right. mean to apply it to everyone in Napa, but like in general. Yeah, I've know. said this before, and then I, people DM me. I'm like, no, dude, I'm not. I'm yeah. not saying. I know there's family. There's some still some family-owned smaller wines in Napa, but like, yeah. But money has hurt Napa. I mean, people come in. Yeah. They make a lot of money in fucking Silicon Valley, and they want a hundred point wine, yeah. and it helps drive up the price of the whole thing. You know, yeah. it, it, it's a it's a it's a part of it's a monster. Not the whole Napa Valley, right. everybody, but part of it is a, a monster. You yeah, know? no, that's but, right. Like you said, like so people. You know, uh, you know that's why these other regions. That's why Santa Barbara became a region. That's why Paso was because people had to find places to find fruit they could afford right. to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and and, and Paso is I'm awesome. I love so many of the wines down there, and the people are great. Yeah. I love Napa too. I mean, I'm not yeah, I'm not no. bashing Napa. No, I love no, it. I still this, love Napa. This is facts. You go look at fruit prices and 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 land prices in Napa, and it's gonna be it's gonna be prohibitive to more more people than. I mean, you gotta sell. You gotta if you if you buy land now. I th- I don't know that you can sell a wine for less than 200 bucks a bottle yeah. and make any money yeah. and make it sustainable. It's right. not really. Right. And that's just, that's just math. That's not, yeah, that's just math. Not, it's not know. ego or anything. Yeah, it's not it's ego. Just it's like, not, it's pure not numbers. Big, that's just, that's like, like, I know how to do math. It's gotta be a, it's gotta be a business that's profitable, right? right? No one wants to go into business to lose money all the time. So to do that in Napa, it just costs a lot of money. And then that, I feel like it's a logical it's a logical uh, thing. Like if, if there's, if more money's at stake, it limits creativity a bit because you're going to sell what you know you can sell and right. people know what they're going to get. You're not going to make a pet nat with Cabernet from Napa Valley. You know right, what I mean? Right. When, like when are companies, they're most disruptive when they're first starting out. Right. And then it right. comes to a point and you hit a, you hit a point of critical mass. You're like, no, nope, we got it. We're profitable. We turn this right. Right. And then, so that's just all that is everybody. Yeah. Um, your wife Carrie also is in the bit like you mentioned her earlier. She started open bottles for you back mm-hmm. when you were in Arizona. You met in Tucson. Yep. Um, so, how did she feel about the move? She was just was she oh. all down for the move? And yeah, no, she was all for it. I mean, we made the decision together. You know, it was like, are we going to do this? And it was it was really exciting. Um, and she's been involved with Force Majeure, and she's involved with everything else um, since the beginning. And she. She really keeps me organized. She does a totally different side of the business than I do and something that's just as important as anything that I'm doing. And she's really good at it. Um, her background was restaurants um, and she managed some restaurants in Napa Valley, some of Cindy Paulson's restaurants, mm. mustards and go fish, which is no longer there. Um, but then she transitioned into the wine business with the Chapelets and she worked with me at Bryant family for a time and then she started consulting and now she's, you know, she's with force majeure and she's with the, she's the GM of the walls and uh, kind of Pasha was her brainchild and it's been fun to get that brand out and rolling too. Yeah. So, and whether I, she's helped with that. Yeah. So you got, so you got force majeure and in that case you sent me, there was uh force majeure wines, uh, Pravada, which mm-hmm. Pravada is a good one. Good Lord. I love making that wine. Oh, <laughs> Blew me away. Um, and then Holocene. So yeah. let's, let's talk about, so Holocene, is this your first time with uh, Pinot Noir? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I knew, I, I looked at not just going to Washington, but I actually looked at Willamette Valley as well. We considered that as an option and, and I, 
poked around. I had some friends like Drew Voigt. He's a he was the winemaker at a winery called Shea. Yeah. Uh, he was there at the time when I visited the Willamette in 2011, and now he has Harper Voigt, and he has a, he has a, some other clients too. But I reached out to him, and he was like, eh, you know, in Willamette, it's pretty limited unless you're going to start your own thing, if, especially if you're not from here. It can be a little bit like hard to penetrate, especially <laughs> being from Napa and Bryant family specifically. Like yeah. people might not welcome you with open <laughs> arms. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I understand. Uh, unfortunate, but like that's that's how it can be sometimes. And so I ended up going, you know, to force majeure, and I'm really happy that that was a decision that I made. But um, I I knew that I wanted to work with Pinot Noir. Okay. So the easiest way to do that was just to start my own little quote unquote side project at the time. And I haven't really grown it since 2015 was my first vintage doing that. 14 was my first vintage in Washington. Started Holocene in 15. Kept it super small. And it's still small. This year I'm adding some vineyard sites. So I'm going to try and expand it. I tried to do that in 2020 and then the fires hit and everything just kind of went to shit that year um, in terms of getting fruit. I got some fruit, but not everything I was hoping to get. Um, but I, yeah, I have, love, you know, I love Burgundy. Um, and I love Oregon Pinot and I think I've been able through Drew and some other connections now, like Grant Coulter from hundred sons and, um, some others, Mike Yetzel, um, been able to get linked up with some good vineyard sites in the Willamette, which is a really fascinating growing region with a lot of diverse AVAs, sub AVAs. And yeah, I love, I love it. But, um, I, I'm just uh, keeping Holocene focused on Pinot Noir for now, for the most part. That's the plan. Okay, and so you're also at the walls. Yep. Um, started that in 2019. Okay. So was that your first time making Chardonnay? Because I know they have. Some. It was. Yeah. Yeah, I did a lot of. I talk to a lot of people, taste a lot of Chardonnays. I love Chardonnay. Um, my prefer, I, I, you know, Ravino and um, Davosat. Yeah, you like Chablis. Some, yeah, yeah, I yeah. love Chablis. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the French Creek Chardonnay you get tends to be a little more textural, a little bit riper, um, but it's still a really good site for Chardonnay. And so that was really, that's been really fun for me to work with that. And Mike Martin, the owner of the walls, has been really open to me experimenting with the Chardonnay there. We made the black Chardonnay in 2019, which is an oxidative style. Right. It's still super fresh, but like it got no sulfur. It got, I mean, I pressed it really hard and just let it turn black and that kind of falls out and it kind of, it resurrects and comes back to life. And that's that whole scene in a, Oh, you're talking about uh, that movie, the, um, the Napa movie, God, Bottle Shock. I Bottle Shock, yeah yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where, where? Um... Well, it's, and it's yeah, it, 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 it's dark, and then it, it comes yeah. back. Yeah, it's crazy. But it's kind of an old school Burgundian way of making wine. That was just how you did it. You know, it was before people are adding a bunch of stuff to right press the juice that's coming out and trying to keep it from oxidizing. No, I was like, we'll go the opposite way and let it just let it get oxidized intentionally. And I think we're going to do that again this year. It's, it's kind of an experiment and we're learning every, every time we do it. Um, I did it in yeah, 19 and then we skipped 
we skipped the last couple of vintages with it because um, we wanted to, or yeah, I wanted to just kind of see how it goes. And now we're really happy with it. So this year we'll do it again. And now Mike owns French Creek Vineyard too. So I can get a little more fruit, have material to play with. So to do some ex- exciting, interesting things besides just like straightforward winemaking, which I think is great, but it's always nice to have something to experiment with every year. So you're learning something. Mm-hmm. And again, that goes back to what I was saying before, where in some places where the fruit's really expensive, you just can't do that because you just don't want to, you don't want to risk it if something doesn't turn out good. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, like, oh, no, pet, no pet nets coming out of Burgundy, France right now. That's what <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's one of those deals. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about, oh, so, um, mm, and then Cruel Summer, first time making a rosé? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and who did you go to for inspiration on that one? I didn't go to anyone specifically for that. Um, I my reference points were more of like Provençal rosé, very, very. I knew I wanted very, very light color, yeah. like mm-hmm. almost gray, mm-hmm. just very faint, really good acid, and very finesse driven, and really super refreshing and crispy. Um, and I knew okay what fruit we'd been using was Grenache and Merved, so. Just giving that that Grenache a little bit of skin contact to get just that pale pale pink color, um, and letting I just do native yeast on that and like let it do its thing and no oak, um, just stainless steel. So I it was more about not it wasn't there was no secrets there like having to learn. It was just like okay, rosé is pretty it's pretty straightforward. It's like not it's not hard to make. <laughs> it's pretty easy. Uh, um, yeah, I mean I to make that style. It is. Some people though I. I see some rosés and I'm like, I don't, for me, like the really dark extracted rosé, I don't, not a fan, not a fan. So go for the really light, elegant, citrusy, stone fruity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so you had actually said earlier that uh, your wife, Carrie, was was the, the, the driving force, and I didn't want to use force because of force majeure, uh-huh. but... but <laughs> um, behind Pasha. So talk about yeah. Pasha. Uh, yeah. Pasha, we kind of sat down with Mike Martin, who, uh, you know, owns the walls and, um, we were sort of spitballing some ideas and thinking about an estate project that we might, might start, you know, cause I was ta- I was telling Mike, you know, it's really good if you can own, own land. Um, and you can control the farming mm-hmm. and kind of tell a story of that place. You find a really good site. So we started the Pasha brand kind of around that concept. The first couple of vintages are from purchased fruit from River Rock. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, you know, Mike acquired Rock Garden Vineyard. And then we've planted another vineyard that's nearby. So the whole acreage for Pasha right now is about 28 acres planted. But the genesis of that was this desire to kind of do something that's sustainable farming, really great estate winemaking, and utilize fruit from the Rocks District specifically for that. So um, Carrie kind of conceptualized the name. The name is the Umatilla Native American tribe from the area. They called Walla Walla Pashapa. It's like place of the sunflowers. Mm-hmm. And so the word Pasha is tied into the history of the Walla Walla region. And um, I think it's the balsam root sunflower. Um, And then her son, Nick, designed the label. He drew this flower that's on it. And he's a great artist. He lives in Portland. 
and he did that and Carrie picked the bottle and then I love the bottle's cool and then like the letter all the letter all the labels are letter pressed and everything's applied by hand all of them are hand labeled and hand waxed and everything there's nothing it's very it takes a long time to do it all but it's it's gorgeous at the end of the day so that was where that whole that was kind of where that whole thing came from was kind of you know, Mike letting us take an idea and run with it. From the winemaking side, you know, I, I conceptualized all the winemaking, like here's what we're going to make, here's how we're going to make it. And then Carrie did all the branding for that whole project, all of the brainstorming for that. And we kind of, she bounced ideas off of me, concepts, and I say, I like this, don't like that. And then we, you know, you just kind of send it back and forth until you're happy. But we did it all ourselves. It wasn't, we didn't hire like a, a firm or a company to mm-hmm. like do design for us. Carrie does a lot of graphic design. She's really good at it. So, yeah, <clears throat> I actually want to go back. I forgot mm-hmm. um, with the walls cause it's Mike and he, Mike's project. But um, you also work with Iberian varietals. You, mm. you guys, you have Tempranillo and something yeah. and uh Tentacau. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a little Tempranillo with force majeure too. There's, okay. I don't know if I you've had that. I should send you a bottle. No, I don't, yeah. There was like a for force majeure at the Red Mountain Estate Vineyard. There was a like 0.3 or 0.4 acre block of Tempranillo, and I was kind of annoyed by it when I first got up there. I was like, "Why is this here? Like, what? Like, what are we gonna do with this?" <laughs> and then I made wine with it, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is really good!" <laughs> like, okay, Tempranillo is a thing there. You know, it yeah. can be really amazing. So. The the Tempranillo I work with for the walls is from the rocks, it's from a, a stony vine vineyard, and it's totally different animal than what's from Red Mountain. It's mm, a weird, I, like I think it's awesome. It's weird. It's funky and it's rocks. I mean, it's got the rocks terroir right, so it's like black olive and it's uh, it's wild, and I really like it. But um, yeah, one of the things I've really enjoyed has been working with the Portuguese varietals. So mm-hmm. yeah, we have, um, Suzao, Tentacau, yep. uh, Turiga Nacional. Oh, and Turiga, I forgot. Yep. Yeah, Turiga, Turiga. Wow. Yeah. Shit. And that's been really fun to work with. We want, I want to get more of it. The problem is like not many people are growing it. Mm-hmm. So actually at French Creek that Mike owns now, we're budding things over to Portuguese and we're going to add Baga and we're going to put, um, Tinta Franca in there. So like having even more Portuguese varietals um, in the future, they're going to be really fun to see how they, they come out. And we're thinking about doing like um, a higher end Turiga, just Turiga bottling. Cause Turiga is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's one of the Bordeaux varietals, accepted say, Bordeaux varietals. And as a winemaker is, is, is your experimentation. Cause in Bordeaux it's for climate change. Like they're looking for, right. um, is that, how are you, how is, how is Walla Walla and where you're the sites you were going to have, they've been affected by climate change. I think it's, I mean, it's affecting everything, right? Yeah. I mean, we see hotter, hotter years. We see wildfires. Yeah. Now where we are, we're a little bit protected from wildfires, at least from, smoke and fires being really, really close to us because we don't have the big timber right around us like you do in Napa Valley or Paso mm-hmm. or Willamette, you know. Um, but we get smoke that can get carried in. It's been carried in from British Columbia, from the Willamette Valley, from California. It gets like it can get funneled in and you can have smoke in there for like a month, you know. Mm-hmm. And it can be anywhere from where it's kind of mildly irritating to where it's 
dangerous for your health, you know, and I've seen it across the spectrum. And that's something that used to not happen. And now it happens, seems like every year. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, last year we didn't really have it, but it was more of like an exception to not have it. Temperatures going up, drier, drier um, growing seasons, less rain. Like last year was really dry. And this year we'll see. Um, we had a really good snowpack, which is awesome. But going into spring, what's what's the precipitation going to be like? I don't know. Mm. And I'm hoping that it's not. Last year, like last year in the spring, everything just suddenly got hot. Just like there was not much of a spring, just kind of went from winter to summer. This year, I hope we have that gradual like warming during the spring. And then we always have a hot summer. But it's been... I mean, it's a concern. It's a concern for everybody. And I remember when I, one of the things I was looking at when I decided to leave California was NASA's climate prediction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maps. <laughs> and they, they had, I remember looking at like Napa and Sonoma on their map and said like by 2050 and they were like red, was, was like don't like how they were smoking. <laughs> yeah. It was like, it was like everything moved. The growing regions like moved toward the coast and north. Yeah. Oregon, even like Willamette, they were saying maybe maybe in the future it's Cabernet Sauvignon there, not Pinot. Wow. I don't know. We'll see. And then in Washington, a whole bunch of new areas are possible to grow grapes in. So I was kind of like, that's that's looking like the direction things are going in. Mm -hmm. You know, and we can hope that that's not going to be how it pans out necessarily for the sake of California. But I mean, it's not looking great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's rough. It's rough. Yeah. It's rough for everybody. And I, I mean, and we're fortunate in that we can irrigate in some places, you know, in France, if you're in the AOPs, like you're not allowed, you can't irrigate, you know? So I think it's, it could end up being a whole new world for them over there having to figure, figure out how to keep things going moving forward. If, yeah. If things continue, we'll be growing Pinot Noir in England more of it no i, I know i mean like people go oh my god people, people, people's like oh my god the you know rieslings from germany are dry i'm like yeah it's, it's great i love them but why are they dry why are they able to get them dry now you know what i mean like <laughs> why why does long island wine taste better because it's getting riper you know what i mean like yeah. people like like everybody gets excited but i'm like and it's cool it's 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 a it's a yes and it's like because it's not cool it's because everything's getting hot that's why right. all these places that where the wine was like yeah mm, we have a wine fun. Yeah, now now they're like, oh shit, this wine's good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, no, it's everything's everything's changing. I think the challenge for us, especially a place like Red Mountain, Red Mountain's already hot. Yeah. And it's gonna get hotter. It's like, okay, what? How high can our alcohols go? <laughs> like, right. Let's keep them. Let's hope that you know. I think doing things like being on top of your farming for one thing can help mitigate some of the heat, and then finding new places that. Maybe you're instead of planting planting on a south slope, you plant on the north side, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and things like that to try to keep it like with Weather Eye. You know, Ryan Johnson has he's the vineyard manager and kind of brain behind the Weather Eye development. Um, he has planted so he they're up on Red Mountain at the very top. They're okay. kind of above Force Majeure, but he's planted a lot of stuff that is on the north side, so it doesn't get the same intense sun in the afternoon that the south side gets. And as a result, longer hang time, um, different different tannin profiles, and uh, 
a lot of really great freshness. So I think even just small things, even if you're within an AVA, um, just making small different different decisions when you're planting, putting a vineyard in, and actually thinking about it rather than just be like, oh, we're just gonna th- throw some throw some vines in the ground and they'll they'll do what they do. Being more thoughtful in the approach, I think, can mitigate some of the climate change symptoms mm-hmm. that we experience. And speaking of weather eye, what is that? What um, what does he plant up there? What type of wines are you gonna be producing for him up there? Yeah, we've got we've got Rhone varietals and Bordeaux varietals and a little Tempranillo. Um, and then he's, you know, whether I, we just released the first wines finally, like a couple of weeks ago, it was, took a long time to get permits only because of like the COVID thing mm-hmm. and just things get, just got, you know, stack of papers on someone's desk and the government, like waiting, for, just waiting for them to get our permit to us. So now anyway, the wines are out there. Um, and then whether I also sells fruit to a handful of Washington wineries um, and all the wines are really good. And Ryan's like one of the most passionate and driven vineyard managers I've ever worked with. And he's super creative. So you, you when you come out, I should, should show you whether I, yeah. um, and it'll kind of blow your mind, all the things that he's thought of and all the things that he's trying and all the things he's done out there. So that's a really fun project. That's really just starting to, and I mean, like project, it's a, it's a thing, like it's going to grow, you know? Um, but, uh, we're just getting things rolling, but it, the focus on that is, and we, we've done some really good whites too. Marsan, Roussan, uh, we have Claret, Viognier, Grenache Blanc. Mm. So playing with a lot of whites, I've been doing a lot more white wines and trying to figure out, um, where the best fruit is for that and what, the, how to treat those in the cellar, just trying to coax more out of the white programs. Cause what, like in force majeure, I've only had Viognier. So now I've got with Pasha with the walls, with weather eye, just more things I can work with. Um, that's really exciting on the white varietal side. So I really love, um, Roan whites. So that's kind of a focal point of, for the weather eye program. And, um, then yeah, like Grenache is a big piece of what we're doing with weather eye. It's raw. Very cool. So, I'll have to get you those wines. I look forward to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a beautiful song. Yeah. <laughs> so all these different projects you got going on, uh, or mm-hmm. projects mm-hmm. and 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 or duties, however I want I want you want to phrase that. Um, what what are you uh, what are you most excited for, man? Uh, you know, in the next coming in the upcoming years. Yeah, I'm excited for. I could itemize it like the the North Fork Vineyard coming online. I've got a couple other little um, projects coming down the pipeline. Um, one one of the things I really like just in general about being up there is it feels like a bit of a a blank slate. There's a lot of opportunity to create. Mm-hmm. And not just to like steward things, but to create and drive, drive what's going to the, def, the definition of going to be the definition of the region. You know, mm-hmm. there's people that like Christoph at Cayuse who've been doing incredible work for a long time and Leonetti and Ryan Van and, and more, but I think there's still room, room to experiment. There's still untapped areas that haven't, we haven't quite discovered or coaxed out everything that we can get from them or different expressions of those places. So for me, 
um, the opportunity to be kind of on the cutting edge, quote unquote, on, uh, on those things is really exciting. That's in general, just something that I'm really excited about beyond getting the different wines out there into the world. And I'm, so I'm always kind of looking for interesting land. I think everything kind of starts with the vineyard. We know that it's kind of cliche to say it, but it's true. So finding real sites that are going to lend themselves most to being out, outstanding, making outstanding wines. I think discovering those is really fun. I really enjoy that. And then I love when people get to actually, you know, taste and enjoy the finished product too. So yeah, it's a long game though. You know, it takes so much time. You find a piece of land, put vines in. It's five years before you have a wine to yeah, give somebody I, out I, of it. I'm, yeah, I was going to ask you that because, I mean, I kind of, but people don't get like. It takes a long time. It takes a minute, like at least five years, right? Before mm-hmm. you get some. Four if for a white maybe, like four years, but still. And then, I mean, that's, and that's just like first harvest, first harvest to bottle, maybe five years and then. You know, really, it's a decade before the vineyard starts to even out, and you know. How do people stay in business? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you gotta have money to. You gotta have money to like see you through those too. few years, yeah. yeah. Because otherwise, it's like, you know, it's not like there's nothing else like it where you have so much money out, money out, money out, money out. It takes a while before you start seeing anything coming back. So you got to be able to withstand that. Shit. Yep. It's like going yep. to like going to college. Yeah, <laughs> spend yeah. all this money. Yep, <laughs> for four paying. years. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Man, it's crazy how expensive college is getting for people. Oh my god, that's well. We had Gary V on, and you, yeah, you've heard that one. Yep, and I, I don't disagree with him on college. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who spent a lot of money, and yeah, t- and took a hit. Took a big hit because I defaulted on my loans. I don't care. <laughs> right. It's paid off. But like, yeah. So because but anyway, it took a big hit. Yeah. Um, and so it is crazy. But that is like, but at least, but there was no bottle of wine for me when I paid off my student loans. At least there's some wine at the end of that rainbow, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so man, I mean, like being um a winemaker and places you've been um places you've got to uh hone your craft um but going going way way back like do is there a specific bottle and it could be with your brother i knew you mentioned italian wines with your brother and okay but was there a bottle of wine what was the bottle of wine i was like just just like you're like oh my god i i really get wine did you, did you have mm. that recollection yeah i mean i had a a bottle of clota pop from chateauneuf a long time ago. I don't remember what vintage it was, but I just remember um, that bottle kind of blew my mind. And I had a bottle of uh, Osone as well that I felt like, oh my God, if I could ever make something that was even approaching something this good, I'd be, I could die happy. Um, but the Clota Pop was kind of the first winery. And I had some actually really good wines from Laurent Charbon too, uh, Domaine Charbon and Chateauneuf also. Mm-hmm. Very lighter style, more kind of Burgundian. Same with Clos de Pop. More, more, you know, a Burgundian sensibility in those wines, more freshness and energy. So those were really, really exciting wines for me. Um, and kind of, I mean, th- those got me kind of hooked on wanting to learn more and sink my teeth in. Now, since then, I've had 
you know, many, 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 many ones. And I have a lot more reference points and database and knowledge and experience. And, um, I, wines that I love kind of run the gamut. I have a whole spectrum just like most of us do, Mm -hmm. you know, that I draw inspiration from, um, and they could be from people, they could be, you know, modern wines from colleagues of mine or they can be really old wines sometimes that are just super inspiring and you wonder like how do they do this how do they achieve this and constantly rethinking kind of what i'm doing and how i can make wines that are going to be thought of like that someday you know and yeah anyway that's cool oh um see i happen i i drink and know things um (laughs) You got a project uh, with uh, Jeff Cohn going on? Wilson? Yeah. yeah. So, tell me about that because yeah, yeah. he calls me all the time. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I love Jeff. He's so funny. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He he has wanted to make a wine in the rocks. And so he approached me a couple of years ago and it's kind of like, I'm thinking about getting some fruit. And I said, what? Well, we can make it at FM. No problem. Yeah. You know, it's small. And so... I think he's got a name for it now. It's it'll be the first vintage will be bottled this May, so coming up pretty soon. I'm not sure what his plans are to release it, and then I actually so I have that going on, but I have a project with Anne Charlotte from Chateau de la Font mm-hmm, de Loup mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. going to be coming out. And so like like his project with uh, Gandalf, uh, like so it's it's yeah. This will be the thing with Anne Charlotte will be every we're going to do it ongoing. So okay. originally it was going to be just a one off, but now it's going to be we've been talking like want to do this every year. So starting the, there'll be a 2020 vintage, and then there's no nothing in 21 because I was wanting to wait and see how it went, mm-hmm. and now it's like okay we'll start it again in 2022 and just keep it keep it going every year. So I'm really excited about that. And that kind of takes me back to now having a project in Chateauneuf is kind of full circle for me a bit because those were the first wines that kind of inspired me. Yeah. Um, and the opportunity to work with Anne Charlotte, who's awesome, and her estate. And so that you're you're making a wine in Chateauneuf. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have that. I'll have that this fall. should be Very imported. Nice. I'll have it here. And it's, i got to import it, so it's yeah. a little bit more complex than just oh, look at you throwing in a bottle. Oh, man, for crinkly. <laughs> <laughs> down hey, I love that guy. I know. He's right? amazing. Um, oh, that's, I can't wait to, to try that one, too. Yeah. Yeah, because... Uh, um, the 2020 is a great vintage too. It was an awesome vintage to start that project. So. Well, that's super cool because we're we're doing some. I'm going to hospice. I'll see you yep. at hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this will come out. We'll have to look at a schedule. Um, but we're Anne Charlotte. We're gonna interview Anne Charlotte. Oh know, yeah, you'll love her. Yeah. Well, Jeff was like, you have to interview yeah. Anne Charlotte. She's like, she's the nicest person. Could be the nicest person in the world. She's hilarious <laughs> yeah. too. She's really funny. She's got way more personality than I do. She's like, <laughs> she's she's hilarious. She's great. Yeah. yeah. I've. I've watched her do seminars and man, she can just like the whole place is la- like cracking up, you know, it's just, she's, she's funny. That's awesome. She's a great winemaker too. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I'm glad I, I, uh, uh, went back. I was like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> cause I didn't, I didn't know about the intro. That's really cool, man. Yeah. I haven't really announced it because it's just sort of a, it's not in bottle yet. You right. know what I mean? And we're fine. We just got TTB approval on the label and everything. So. Um, there's nothing, there's no there there yet, but it will be coming this fall. So super excited. Really cool. Really cool. Yeah. Well, Todd, man, 
thank you so much for um, making time to come in the studio. Thanks for having me. Short time here in New York. My pleasure. Um, because we've we've done the IG live. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was building out this thing, you, that box of wine you sent me, I had never had your wines, and three of your wines made time. And there's no bullshit. I was like, fuck. I was just blown away, like literally blown away by the wines. Thanks, um, man. So um, it was really cool. I appreciate uh, that. Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, tell everybody where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing, like all your little, we'll put it in the notes, but like who they should follow on social media, what mailing list they should get on. Yeah. There's the force majeure. It's, um, I mean, you can just Googling it, it's the easiest way to get to the website because force majeure website's like FM dash wine. Yeah. We'll put, so just Google for it. We'll put it in the show notes, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes with a hyphen, sometimes right. without a hyphen. No, right. um, uh, just force majeure. And then there's Pasha, which is another fun one because yep. it has all this special characters and people are exactly. like, what? I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm like, yeah, we just like to do difficult <laughs> things, make it hard to. Holocene. Holocene. <laughs> how do you say that? <laughs> Halocene? Like, no, it's an O. Holo. That's the most common one. People call it Halocene. I'm like, no, it's, it's an O. Holocene. <laughs> <laughs> Very hallowed wine. And wines, then there's <laughs> the walls, the walls, and there's Weather Eye Vineyards. So those are all the active projects going on. D- just Google any of those; will take you to the website. And then all of them have social media too. So Instagram's a big one. I don't really do Facebook much, um, but um, then on Instagram, I'm just me Todd M E T O D D. Um, there's handles for Weather Eye Vineyards. Yeah, we'll um, put them all on the notes for you guys. Okay. Um, and we do, yeah, so we do mailing list. We have, you know, we have limited distribution. Um, like I'm here this week meeting with a distributor. But um, the distribution on any of these is fairly limited, so they can be a little bit hard to find. The easiest way is just sign up for the mailing list on each of the websites, and we release the wines a few times a year. And um, you'll get an email, log in, buy the wines, and then we ship them straight to you. Pretty straightforward. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Well, like I said, thanks again, Todd. And for all my listeners out there, make sure, don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode. That's where you're going to find all the information we just talked about. Um, Also, we'll talk about the cool wine that Todd didn't bring and and just other things that we discussed. So to all my mavericks, philosophers, deep thinkers, and wine drinkers, and I love it when my guests check off all the boxes, your boy MJ saying peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 